0: Welcome back, everyone, to Singapore Perspectives 2024. We will now begin the second panel on the terrain ahead. This panel will touch on the terrain that Singapore youth will inherit in the coming years, and it will touch on topics including climate advocacy, retirement and caregiving, as well as the future of work for youth. I am Clara. I am a research fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies, and I will be the moderator for this panel. Before we start, I would like to go through some housekeeping rules. This conference is open for media coverage. We will also have a question and answer segment for the latter half of this panel. If you have questions for our speakers, you may type them into the Q&A panel located on the right side of your screen. You can do this at any time during the session. We invite everyone at our conference to contribute to our discussions in a respectful and safe manner and to focus on the issues at hand. IPS reserves the right. To so act in a way to ensure that this is always the case in all of the chat or Q and A functions at our conference. Let me now introduce our esteemed speakers for this panel. We, we first have Ms. Farah Sonwari, the head of Partnerships at Sputnik Lab, a Singapore Futures Fellow at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, and also serving as an advisor for the Youth Panel, which is an initiative of Forward Singapore. She will be sharing with us key shifts in the past decade affecting the environment and youth advocacy, its associated developments in recent years and the terrain ahead in the climate space for youth. We will next have Dr. Manusha De Silva, a social and cultural geography lecturer at the Department of Geography at the National University of Singapore. Her research focuses on transnational migration, aging amongst migrants and elder care relations within transnational families drawing on her expertise she will share with us the future of retirement and elder care in Singapore as well as the impact of migration on retirement and later life care issues that are especially pertinent to Singapore's aging population our last speaker for the panel is Dr Trevor Yu associate professor in the division of leadership management and organization at the Nanyang business school at the Nanyang technological university his research focuses on creating valuable organizational cultures through factors including understanding the impact of AI-based technology at the workplace. He also examines different forms of work that deviate from traditional work arrangements and their subsequent impact on the well-being of workers. In this panel, he will share the new reality of work and its challenges, as well as what our youth desire as they enter the workplace and what they can expect future employers to provide. Without further ado, I will now pass the time over to our first speaker, Farah. Farah,
1: please. Hi everyone, good morning, and thank you so much for having me here today. Uh, I will be speaking as a youth advocate, I suppose, but um, just a quick disclaimer, I am right, I'm, I'm like on the far extreme of my um, my youth. Youth, um, it's already uh, 2024 and I am now reaching my uh, retirement age for youth at 35 years old. Uh, But I have been in the youth uh, advocacy space for the past 10 years, um, seeing uh, that I am actually a social innovation junkie. I started the Repair Kopitiam um, uh, initiative by Sustainable Living Lab while I was working there. And that was to uh, help people to repair their items so that we could have um, less waste in, uh, in the waste stream. Uh, I also started Fitree, which is an Islamic environmental group uh, 10 years ago and is now like doing well. Um, as, uh, as of now, I am now part of Sputnik Lab which is a social innovation lab addressing digital literacy for seniors in Singapore and marginalized communities outside of Singapore. Um, but more importantly, also I think there's an there, there is an emphasis on uh, making sure that we see things long term in doing social innovation, because when we want to see transformational change, we are uh, we need to think long term by having um, some level of foresight. And so, um, I developed uh, a niche in uh, futures thinking and now teach at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy as a uh, uh, futures thinking lecturer um, and guide youth and also different um, groups of um, people in doing foresight work. So um, that's me. Um, but today, before we were asked on uh, what is the terrain ahead for youth, uh, I actually had to think about like what are the key shifts that have been happening for the past few years in the climate or the environmental space. Um, just to bring uh, people on track, the first thing I want to bring across is actually about COP21. Which is uh, a big um, uh, important event, which was to uh, during the Paris Agreement, uh, which was to substant that, that agreed upon substantially reducing global greenhouse gas emissions, uh, to hold global temp- temperatures uh, increase to well below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, and to pursue efforts to limit it to one point five degrees above pre-industrial levels. Um, people also were uh, countries were also asked to assess assess their progress uh, by having the. Uh, uh, national determined contributions, what, what, are, their, um, what are their developments that, um, in addressing climate change. And um, during, uh, during the Paris Agreement, they also wanted to ensure that there is uh, financing to, ve- to provide financing to developing countries to mitigate climate change and strengthen their resilience and uh, enhance their abilities to adapt to climate impacts. So that's the first thing that was very important uh, in twenty, in twenty fifteen, um, and that has actually um, shifted the views on what, um, how we should deal with the world. That a lot of things have to change, um, in the economy, in the society. Uh, yeah, and the next thing would be on um, the acceleration of. Um, uh, renewable energy technology. So, renewable energy technology is now cheaper to produce, and is therefore easier to deploy. So, there is also a global crisis recently, and in response to that uh, global energy crisis recently, and in a response to, response to that, policymakers in many countries, particularly in Europe, have actively uh, sought alternatives to imported uh, fossil fuels. And solar PV is currently the most favorable. Um, especially in the residential and commercial system space, because it can be rapidly installed. And according to the International uh, Energy uh, Agency, China is set to outpace the rest of the world in renewable uh, capacity installations in 2023 2023 and 2024. So you can see that there is a shift first from COP21 with the Paris Agreement, and then we have an acceleration um, from the uh, industries to move towards renewable energy. And the, the final thing that I wanted to bring up was uh, is about um, Greta Thunberg's uh, School Strike for Climate, um, which is a very significant um, societal movement, so, social movement in addressing climate change, because uh, for her, the, the sim- message was simple, but it was very powerful. She called on politicians to take urgent and meaningful action to address climate change and reduce carbon, carbon emissions. Her activism has sparked an uh, like global uh, response and you have uh, not just youths who have been actively putting themselves out there to address, to to, to want to, demanding for change, uh, but also then you have your uh, leaders of the world who are, like respond to that as well. So that was a very powerful thing, shift in society. Um, so with these three things, I wanted to bring a, bring back to how it's like on the home ground in Singapore. Um my next slide. Oops. Yeah. About um how we are seeing a transition of a green economy by preparing our workforce for new jobs that will emerge out of these industries. Also, there is an emphasis on businesses to comply to ESG standards across the board. So enterprises themselves are changing business, yeah, business models uh, across the value chain. So bringing down our carbon pr- footprint across the value chain is important. And so we need the labor force to partake by understanding what it means, what that means and applying that to the work that we do. And since all jobs are being greened in one way or another, universities too are offering courses to help these youths along. right? Um, of course, this is also like uh, spearheaded by our SG Green Plan Twenty Thirty, with um, like a multi-ministerial effort to ensure that we transition well as a whole country and not just by the responsibility of one ministry. Next will be on how youth actually perceive. impact of climate change. Now this is a study by uh, the Today Youth survey uh, out of 1,000 participants with 45% of them saying that they are fearful of climate change and sad and hopeless, Um, but then they are cautiously optimistic and hopeful, uh, with the least being hopeful. And this is quite scary as as a society, right? And this was done in 2022. Um, So we can expect with this kind of, what are we going to do to ensure that these numbers actually reduce over time, and that we can actually be active, and more active and proactive in addressing these instead of um, and also maybe just to deal with these feelings to begin with, um. So, I actually um think that we are doing pretty well because we have environmental advocacy done by youth for the past few years, and ground-up initiatives are done to inform and raise awareness to the public about climate change and environmental issues. And we also have um, the role of social media in this because our youths have taken, our environmental advocates have leveraged on these platforms to make it easier for people of all ages to understand the issues better and to take action, be it as individuals or as a group of people. So climate rally uh, that happened first in 2019, following Greta Thunberg's um, global um, influence on having youths come together, um, ha- had 2,000 people, more than 2,000 people attended. Uh, in recent, in last, at, uh, at the climate rally last year, we had uh, about 1,400 people who attended it. This is post-pandemic, and this was already very significant, um, raising issues about not just about how the environmental uh, the environment is changing, but how it's affecting people and how unequal that um, climate change could affect people. So when you have uh, climate change, we could install, because of heat stress, we could install air con at home, but what about people who cannot afford it? Um, so this kind of inequities are actually being brought up during the climate rally. We have uh, Chiyun over here who has, uh, uh, who is an environmental uh, communicator, um, Yeah, and she actually has a page that gives uh, very, very good um, illustrations and videos on what is happening out there in the world. And she's been doing this consistently for many years. She's not the only one, and there are several other advocates that I really, really support. And um, this is something that shows how proactive uh, youths are on the ground, right? But the worry is that social media is something that that could um, is actually about foreign influence, but to me, it's really about uh, the opportunity for learning and um, for, for and collaboration, really. So on that front, we actually, as a state, has moved forward by um, engaging youth at uh, on different levels. So there was a national youth dialogues that happened over the twenty twenty two, where uh, the national youth dialogue. Supported by Forward SG, uh, youth shared their views on future-oriented issues such as social inclusiveness, sustainability, and industry transformation. And more recently, the youth uh, National Youth Council Youth Panels uh, was created to have um, youths be involved in co-creating policies with ministries and government agencies. So every um, so we're looking at areas where like green hacks, uh, job hacks, life hacks, and tech hacks. We have a range of youths from fifteen. 14 to 35 uh, It's a large range, um, but still, you know, you, you're over there learning how to co-create policies, how do you investigate a particular issue, how do you think deeply about an issue, um, how do you uh, write papers together, uh, how do you do a policy recommendation, so this is very important for youth to learn, so this is like civic participation, participation for them, right? Beyond just advocacy, uh, beyond just advocacy on their own platforms, uh, the country itself, our country's, our state supports this by having like a youth panel and national youth dialogues, which I thought was very, very fascinating. To be honest. Uh, Next we, yeah, um, on my front as a LKYSPP uh, lecturer, we've been running the Singapore Futures Youth Competition uh since 2021 was it 2020 i forgot uh but basically having a whole lot of singaporean youth from all different backgrounds including ITE poly uh, madrasas uh, different backgrounds really to talk together about what it, what it means uh, for the future uh, and, and in 2022 we had a future of um, sustainability in singapore in 2050 so this is one of the um ideas that they had about the future feud- Chair, the future um not like having this kind of platforms to um not just use foresight tools but to like use them in application of what is important for them in the long run um like deep concerns about singapore right um that that was like that's a good encouraging um development out there and last but not least uh we have the the supporting or bringing our youths to like international platform. Hold on. Let me see next slide. Yes. Um, to which I was part of in um, the high level political forum on sustainable development where I presented together with minister Grace Fu on the, um, voluntary national review of our sustainable development goals in New York. Um, and also recently at COP 28, we had 20 youths who were there to represent Singapore. Um, that, gave them the space to understand Singapore's uh, plans and Singapore's strategies, and to communicate that with the world. Um, so that was very encouraging. So give this highlights a particular um, focus on youth, uh, a particular support for youth and how they could proactively uh, serve the nation. So what does this mean, right? The terrain ahead? Um, I mean, among other things beyond economy and our uh, geopolitical issues. Uh, Because climate change is a certainty, um, we will have things like food insecurity. You know, food security issues will pop up, right? Because where will our food grow? What do we do when we have less of certain things? Um, So we have all these strategies to ensure that we are more secure. In Singapore, 30 by 30, that strategy, right? And then we have heat stress. Um, Singapore will increasingly get hotter how do we deal with that on a social front like ha- what kind of um there isn't currently an advisory if a certain temp- if the temperature goes up by a certain amount we would have an advisory but uh, what does it mean on like on the day-to-day level uh do we actually have different kind type of types of jobs for that would pop up uh, more in th- more more jobs that are indoors for example and then we have flash floods again mobility will be an issue so we are definitely going to have youths who would start to think about um, what would that world look like in, in the future. And so there's going to be existential questions. Um, but certainly there is room to re-perceive our world. My slide's not moving. Okay. um So I know this is not a non-exhaustive question. um There's like questions about what does it mean to have a green and healthy economy? Uh, What does work mean to me? What does family mean to me? And this is among many things. And the questions are existential in nature, but um, I think youths would be able to use this opportunity to take the necessary actions and be supported too by the state to build a better world. So um, that's my two cents worth of what the terrain ahead could be. Um, Thank you so much for your time, everybody.
0: Thank you Farah. you have helped us not only better understand the past and the present with respect to youth advocacy as well as the environment, but also helped us make sense of what lies ahead for youth and perhaps their evolving role in the climate space. We will now shift our attention over to glean some insights into retirement and caregiving uh, when
2: Manusha will share more about that with us. Manusha, over to you.
3: Thank you so much, Clara. Good morning. Good morning, uh, Trevor Farah. And it's great to know that we have 790 participants this close to the lunch hour. So thank you so much for being there. And thank you, IPS, for inviting me to share my thoughts on the future of Singapore's youth in terms of their life after retirement. So in the next 15 minutes, I will focus specifically on what later-life care might look like for. Singaporean youth of today. And I made these suggestions sort of projections by extrapolating from the existing work on all the Singaporeans and aging trends in Singapore, Observations and certain studies on the older population in first world nations, such as Europe, Japan, South Korea, and some of my own research on retirement migration among British Sri Lankans and their decision to return to Sri Lanka for retirement. So I'm basically building on these aspects. So just to go to the cover slide. Yeah, so this is basically what I intend to unpack in this particular presentation, really to sort of see how can we think about care arrangements? How does the particular uh, family patterns right now, the particular demographic changes among Singapore youth today convey certain questions we need to address, think about when we are planning for their future retirement. Right. Next slide. Okay, so what will the older population of the future be like? So, as signaled by previous speakers, Singapore is one of the fastest aging societies. And by 2030, one in four Singaporeans will be over the age of 65 years. So really in this slide, I'll sort of build on certain understandings we already have of older Singaporeans and think about the possible challenges the future older population might face. What kind of solutions can we consider for the future? And I would like to highlight that the suggestions I make, these are not groundbreaking new ideas from me, but what I'm doing is really drawing attention to existing schemes or ideas that are already being circulated in the field, you know, as future possibilities, right? So I focus on two key trends that we might need to consider when talking about future later life care arrangements, okay? So first, um. Is the higher rate of singlehood. So as the two nationwide studies on youth showed, singlehood among younger Singaporeans is increasing, right? It's increasing. and But this does not automatically indicate that they are partnerless. They may be so in the official sense, right? And this is another trend is that there's greater independence among older Singaporeans. And as noted in the study by Tang Ling Lang and John Suen way back in 2018 even, 78% of Singaporeans belonging to various age groups prefer to live alone or with spouses in their own homes. So on the one hand, it's likely that the future youth might not have an adult child to take care of them or they prefer not to depend on them. So while currently though families considered as the sort of um front first line of defense for elder care we might have to consider alternative ways of thinking of what is family consider alternative care arrangements that align with the current aging in place focus. right so one example we can consider is co-living with people who are not family. And this is quite popular in US, European countries. And of course, this is not a new idea. It can actually take various permutations where a room is rented out to a stranger with the understanding that they will keep an eye out for the older person. You know, in case of emergency, see that the person has not fainted somewhere, for example, and, you know, maybe accompany them to, for doctors visit. So there's this kind of informal arrangement. But increasingly, the private sector is involved in creating independent living projects with senior housing that is integrated with care services. And it's a concept similar to Kampong Admiralty, but with um, more attention given to elderly with no immediate family. So this is something that's increasingly becoming popular. And actually, even in Singapore, there are a few private companies that do offer co-living arrangements as a replacement for mainly nursing care, right? So where apartments can be rented out by seniors and they share the caregivers with those who they share the apartment with. Now, this type of uh, initiative does face certain challenges at the present moment because of rising housing prices. But they are increasingly seen in Singapore as an alternative for nursing care, right? But less so, and I do this is what I find quite interesting and an opportunity to consider, that it's considered less of an option for the young and more healthy older population. And this is the group that we call the young old, those between ages 65 to 74. So the question is, how can, can such arrangements be made available for you know Singaporeans when they are in their 60s or when they're in their 70s you know this is so in that sense it's not just a focus on aging in place but also aging with people they have a good rapport a good connection with already so it's not simply about thinking as we're getting older who's going to take care of us because there's some research in Singapore also showing that as all the older population gets um you know they're Care needs intensify, as they're more frail, There is it's more challenging to engage with the community and have that sort of aging in place experience unless caregivers enter the household. But what we can also see is how can these kind of arrangements build a sort of closeness, not within the community, but even within the household, right? So this is something we can think as a possible care arrangement for the future, but also these kind of um trends, especially increasing singlehood, particularly, makes us also question of what can we consider as, you know, who the young, present young, consider as family as they get older. Would the, you know, how do younger Singaporeans think of family not not only in the legal sense, but also who do they turn to in time of need? Is it their childhood friends, co-workers, or would it be, you know, the help of a paid uh, caregiver, right? Could this person become actually their closest family member? So it's about sort of rethinking what we understand as family in the context of these trends we are observing nowadays, right? So is it only adult children, siblings, extended family as cousins that we can include now in the definition of family, or do we need to adopt a more broader, flexible definition of family, right? So, this next slide. So, the second key factor I believe we need to sort of think about when considering the future uh, of retirement of the youth is really migration, and especially how it may influence younger Singaporeans' retirement planning. Now, as already noticed by previous speakers, thinkable society is a diverse, it's a hyper diverse uh, society, and I'm referring particularly to the first panel that talked about this. And this is particularly due to migration and the formation of what I call transnational families. where there are family members, you know, spread across uh, the countries, you have members from different countries as well. Right. So we already know that marriage migration is a dominant trend in Singapore. So it is quite likely that marriage migrants and their Singaporean spouses might consider retirement in their home country. And even children from such marriages might consider retiring in their migrant parents' home country because they have already built social networks in another country as well. So for them, Family is not only in Singapore, family could be in another country in the region as well. So that also complicates what we understand as later life care now, okay? And another ongoing trend in Singapore is what is called grandparenting migrants arriving in Singapore, where families in Singapore tap into family members in another country to help them out. And as research done by my colleagues, Elaine Ho, Shalina Huang, and Brenda Yo have shown, in through their study on grandparenting migrants in from China who are in Singapore on a five-year long long-term visa pass, these migrants sort of you know conduct multiple trips to Singapore to take care of their grand children, and some of them actually do incorporate relatively well into um, Singapore society, and others relatively less. And one of the notable aspects is that the visa category limits the opportunity to join community clubs, and thus the ability to meet peers. So their experience of aging in place is somewhat different, though they do live in Singapore for a significant amount of time. So this is also some uh, uh, a particular trend that could intensify in the future. So that's something to just keep an eye out for, I think. And then Another category, and the key category I'm focusing on are the retirement migrants who, you know, Singaporeans who consider retiring in another country. Now, before I go into this uh, particular topic of retirement migrant, I do want to signal that this has not always been perceived favorably as a retirement option, especially in Asian nations previously, like somewhere in the 1980s, 1990s, when the Japan state initially encouraged retirement as an option. There was this question about, you know, is this really the best thing? Are we actually exporting our the contributors to our economy after they're retired? So these are the kind of rhetoric also that I signal is changing now. And as the Reddit um, post is signaling, you know, Elderly are definitely sorry, the youth are more open to these kind of ideas. The present-day older uh um uh, Singaporeans are open to it. They don't always consider it as sort of a lack of filial piety or lack of options within Singapore itself. And in fact, I think the current younger population have a very global outlook. So it could potentially be an exciting, welcoming option. Now Again, looking specifically at the retired uh, migration literature, things are quite fine when you're in their 60s, 70s. You're young, you're relatively healthy. It's quite exciting to travel to another country, explore new um, culture with your spouse, for example. So research on Japanese migrants in uh, Thailand, uh, Malaysia, those from coming from Europe in various scenarios have shown that things go a little south when you hit like your 80s when you have intense care needs so this is where things get more concerning and this is where there is more dissatisfaction particularly because your spouse may have passed away and you're not you're sort of abandoned and also you may um uh, not communicate with your caregivers because of language difficulties for example now this is where of course um we can't find an immediate solution because most of the time the research shows that they into, tend to be stuck in this country. And my research shows that some of the Sri Lankan migrants can't move out sometimes because of this. And in this sense, I turned to the case of European Union, where here, research by, you know, Louis Ackers and Peter Dwyer, they proposed this concept called senior citizenship, based on the case of the Euro- European Union, where, for example, British retirees can go to Spain live there for a long time and then return to UK because they actually have access to the care system because of this supranational scenario. Now of course with Brexit that has changed, but it's still available to those within the European Union. But the main thing is that people in the European Union have residential and social rights where they can access healthcare. They can take their assets to one country and after they don't want to stay there for a very you know especially after healthcare needs intensify, they can move back. So especially as young Singaporeans now are considering moving out of the region, one thing we could consider is can these initiatives that are very well developed in place in Singapore currently for our senior citizens, can they be scaled up to a regional scale? So this is something for us to think about in the future. right? So is it possible for us to consider a similar scenario that's there in the EU within ASEAN? So I think I'm nearly up for time, so I will come to an end now. And I know this presentation raises more questions rather than answers, but I hope these are thinking points for us to consider. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Manusha. You have reminded us of not only the stark realities of our aging society, but also how migration fits into the retirement plans of possibly a growing number of Singaporeans. We will next have Trevor to share with us what the future workplace will look like, what our youths would want from work, and what can employees provide to not only add value to their own organisation, but also to the work experiences of our youth. Trevor, over
4: to you. Thank you very much, Clara. Very good afternoon to everyone. Make sure that my slides are up. Okay, yeah. Very good afternoon again. Uh, my name is Trevor Yu, and I'm an associate professor at NTU. Uh, I'm on the faculty of the Nanyang Business School, where I teach and do research on issues to do with talent management and organisational behaviour. I also serve as a co-director at the Centre of uh, Research and Development in Learning, where uh, I've I, I help to spearhead research in adult learning, workforce, and lifelong learning. So. Let's begin by taking some time to review some of the key characteristics of the environment that talent managers operate in today. Specifically, uh, the business environment that poses some important challenges for us, like uh, how do we manage people in jobs where AI or robots operate many times faster while making fewer mistakes or errors? How do we manage a workforce that will become more inclusive and diverse than ever before? Yeah, I just want to make sure. Yeah, this. And how do we operate in an environment that will be increasingly global, regional, and virtual at the same time? How do we manage a workforce faced with increasing conflicting demands from both work and family? So I just uh, yeah right. So my thesis is that the future workplace will thus represent a new reality when it comes to work and careers, and this new reality will continuously be shaped by the forces of technological change, digital revolution, uh, demographic and social change, as well as global competition. Uh this is known as VUCA for short. Uh, So the increasing volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity is going to be an issue that all organizations, employers, and their workers have to deal with. The two main questions I hope to deal with in today's session uh, are following. One is, what will it take to motivate and engage the future worker? And what kind of workplace will future employers need to create in order to make working worthwhile? So uh, my starting off point is uh, by providing insight to the psychology of the future worker by addressing primarily this very simple question is uh, what will future workers want? Specifically, I would like to highlight four basic motivations that research has uh, in Uh, pointing towards, uh, specifically the need to acquire, bond, comprehend, and defend, or ABCDs in short for motivation. Let's discuss each of these in more detail. First is the need to acquire, which refers to the need to obtain scarce goods, not just material wealth, but intangibles, such as respect, self-esteem, and social status. Pay and benefits will undoubtedly still remain important. Right. Uh, however, the current data suggests that the correlation between compensation and job satisfaction is modest at best, about 0.20 only. Even more important is for people to feel engaged or energized by their work. So work engagement is highly correlated with job satisfaction as well as it is with commitment. The lesson here is that people care about what others think but what they do for a living. And this will be further amplified by the increased connectedness and pervasiveness of social media in our society today. The future work will also want to bond or form meaningful connections with individuals and groups at work. These connections form uh, an important criteria of social support, uh, which is moderate to highly correlated with both life and job satisfaction, respectively. Future workers will also be driven more and more towards satisfying their own curiosity and needs to achieve mastery over their job, role, and environment. Workplace learning is thus a uh, strong relationships with job satisfaction and work commitment. Lastly, the need to defend means being motivated to protect against external threats and promoting justice. Essentially, this emphasizes the need for fairness and transparency about how one is being treated on the job. Uh, Having these present in work processes results in a moderate to high correlation with satisfaction and work. Summarized, future workers will be motivated and driven to fulfill all four of these fundamental ABCDs, which leads us to our second question. What can you expect future employers to provide? One thing is becoming clear, and that is uh, one's job itself can be a very powerful engagement tool. The key to unlocking this tool is to empower. So empowering your employees creates a feeling of confidence and competence by helping workers see the meaning and the impact of their jobs. In order to have empowerment, jobs have to be designed to provide two main things. The first thing is autonomy. To provide autonomy essentially means relinquishing some managerial control over the determination of how work is done and how time is spent on the job. Next is to provide clarity. And giving clarity means to communicate consistently about what the business's or organization's mission is and how the individual's performance contributes to the achievement of their employer's goals. So there must be some constant communication about organizational values and feedback about how individual performance is in line with what the organization is trying to achieve. When you empower, you will have to be prepared for two things. One is you will see increasing personalization of the work experience for each individual. The workplace of the future will involve more negotiation of what we call idiosyncratic deals, whereby work environments or work arrangements that are flexible and adjusted to fit the worker's own preferences. These primarily cover learning and development opportunities, uh, which will also be increasingly customized towards interests and aspirations of the worker. You should also expect employees to display more proactivity on a job. Uh, one of the instances is true group job crafting, which is to take existing expectations and roles and to expand them to suit one's own desire to make a difference. Examples of this. A type of crafting behavior include like cleaning staff, seeing themselves as not just a janitor or an assistant nurse, but part of a professional healing team. And nurses also going beyond their prescribed job roles to connect with both patients and their families. A huge part of job crafting involves re-looking at how our work affects others. So teachers job craft when they see themselves not just imparting skills and abilities to their students, but also helping to mold the future of a nation. Similarly, when prison officers job craft, they see themselves as helping to rehabilitate people who want to make a positive change in their lives. The main message here is worthy future jobs have to help people connect with their jobs so that jobs can be experienced as both meaningful and engaging. In the future fairness and transparency will also be paramount especially important uh, employers will have to be more accountable for how their resources are allocated and also to ensure their workers that they understand and buy into why things are done in a certain way think the recent phenomenon for instance fairness and transparency have to be emphasized when employers calibrate the transition back to physically co-located work in the office. This means decision on who to return and when they should return should be made not just based on the workflow and who's responsible for what, but also in consultation with both individuals and their team members. This collaborative approach will help employers and their managers handle differences between those that are working more offsite, and those returning to office more frequently. This helps to prevent rival subcultures from forming. The future workplace will also have to harness more human potential in terms of ideas to drive innovation. This makes creating a culture healthy for learning and knowledge sharing. And this makes psychological safety at work very important. This describes an environment where individual workers feel that they're able to express and be their authentic selves without fear of negative consequences for their self-image, status, or career. Essentially, you want to create a shared belief that the workplace is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. Here are Some principles for psychological safety that you can implement. Right? First is to acknowledge that mistakes can happen. Avoid punishment and shaming as it can shake the confidence and self-efficacy of the employee. Second is to make asking for help more routine and normal. Uh, In fact, set an example to proactively offer to help among your teams, right? Especially in terms of challenging tasks or roles. Last but not least, is to emphasize that your team's success will depend on the surfacing of errors and learning from them. Mental health and well-being uh, will also have a huge role to play in the future of work. Soon employers will be expected to take care of their workers in this respect by displaying more empathy and emotional intelligence during regular interactions. And benefits like counseling and mental wellness programs will also occupy a more prominent role in total rewards offerings. One of my key takeaways from today's session. Firstly, the future workplace will continue to be shaped, not even more, faster paced by technological change, demographic and social change, and increased global competition and cooperation. Similarly, we should also expect the future worker to have to adapt and evolve in response to these forces. And so the insight to the psychology of workers provides employers with clues for how to better engage this workforce of the future by tapping into underlying motivations to acquire, bond, comprehend, and defend the ABCDs of motivation. That's all I have for you today. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you Trevor for sharing with us not only the current landscape of work, but also what our youth desire in a workplace and what employers can offer to make work more meaningful and enjoyable endeavour for all. We will now move on to the Q&A segment and our speakers will take questions from the audience. You may type your questions using the Q&A panel on the right side of your screen. We have also collected and organised some questions as they came in during this session. But before I go to that, perhaps just an opening question to all our speakers uh, this afternoon. So perhaps we can start thinking about what you think our youths will support and care in a practical sense about the environment, about aging policies, as well as uh, as, uh, about employment rights and roles in Singapore for our youth today. So perhaps we can have uh, Farah first and then Manusha and then Trevor.
1: Yeah, I actually was thinking about, like, um, what Dr. Manusha was bringing up about uh, retirement and things like that, because I will be retiring, no, I'm supposed to be retiring in 30 years' time, right? Um, But I also need to understand, we also need to understand, like, what is the profile of people who are going to retire? And they are at that age where, uh, if they're now 35, um, then they are millennials, people who are... Um, high uh, early adopters of technology, or like people who can learn technology really quite quickly. Um, yeah, I was writing down about how um, how we would like to how we are now also per- perceiving relationship with parents, getting therapy, uh getting there are things that we are doing now in our generation that our parents' generation did not do before. And so what would that mean when we are eventually, when we eventually retire? So um, I really think that we if we want to think about the future of uh like um the population later on in retirement, uh, that would be to look at the current uh, state of being in the yeah positions of people today. Um yeah. That's my take on
3: it. Thank you. If I'll well, add on, and I just sort of need to echo what you know, Farah said. I do agree. It's about looking at the present situation, the present challenges that the older population is facing. So, what kind of challenges do they face in terms of maintaining connections? Maybe yeah. Maintain, finding affordable care example so these are kind of ways in which we can consider the sort of issues that the younger generation needs to think about so again in terms of you know maintaining connections for one, how can we build lasting connections to last a lifetime is that possible or do we need to think of you know have a more openness to multicultural societies do we tend to engage with people who are culturally similar to us because as we said before Singapore is very diverse now so with these kind of changing demographic trends can we be opening that way so these are ways that I think immediately we don't see those connections but if you think about later life care most of our caregivers are foreign domestic workers so you have a person who cares for you who is from a different culture as yourself so in a sense more broadly I would say think again reflecting again exactly what Farah said thinking of what the current population sees but also expanding on that
4: Thanks, Minutia. Um, so I think that there's we probably all have been noticing that there's an increased awareness of social justice, I would say, uh, across wide swathes of uh society and a population. And so um the relevance of this, uh especially from an employer and a workplace standpoint is that uh, we have a generation or future generation of workers that will be increasingly focused on the responsibility of companies and the responsibility of employers and that level of corporate social responsibility. Uh, So these will factor quite literally into decisions of who we want to work for, who we want to be associated with as an employee, uh, because I think that this will impact uh, what considerations do people make? They will be thinking about, okay, this employer or this organization, what kind of impact or links do they have with the environment, with our community, okay? Uh, Specifically, what is the company doing in regards to sustainability initiatives. uh, The key question that they're going to ask is that what will be our legacy, right? What, What are we leaving on for the next generation? So I think that this will be an important factor that will drive the future of work.
0: Thank you. Thank you all. I think what we have discussed uh, so far actually fits very well into one of our top voted questions from our audience, which is broadly about how we can balance the expectations uh, and wants of our youths with uh, the government state uh, governing responsibilities. So this question is posed uh, to Farah, but I think it can be broadened to also um, to talk about ageing, retirement, as well as work. So the question is about when it comes to climate change policies, how does the government balance the expectations of youth with its state governing responsibilities? So I would think that the question is getting at perhaps trade-offs and you know, what are the trade-offs and are there areas where both the interests of our youths, as well as the state actually align. And this question is certainly not limited to just climate policies, but also, um, I would like to invite Benusha and Trevor to also chime in, uh, with respect to retirement, migration, as well as work. But perhaps we can start with Farah first.
1: Right. So I actually don't come from the government. Right. So I, but I do interact a lot with the government and I realized that actually over time that the interests of a lot of youths have been really quite heard, um, through different platforms over the past few years. I mean, 10 years ago, uh, environmental issues was not mainstream, but now it's like of global importance. And so it's necessary to engage the folks who are actually going to live through this, um, real issue over the next few decades. Right. And so, I I appreciate that the state actually uh, involves us in in, um, policy, up to the level of policy making, which is pretty new actually. Um, back in 2019, I was appointed as a Youth uh, Circle member. Uh, that It was initiated by MCCY uh, and National Youth Council to have a bunch of youths who have actually started their own initiatives or have impacted Singapore in the environmental space in one way or another, with it be through the corporate space or non-profit space. Um, and we were pulled together to um, consider, like, learn, not learn, but more like... Um, navigate through the process of policy making how do you do policy making together with government rather than just expect the government to do everything for you or to just give feedback and hopefully they will do something about it and so uh, on our end we were learning things like um, Engage. how do you engage with um, different agencies? What is the pain point? What's the lowest hanging fruit? Uh, like, what can we complement? How can we complement the process of policy making? And eventually came up with um, a proposal on how to deploy the Good Samaritan law um, for food donation. And this is still being tabled uh, in the government, uh, in, in parliament. So that was a start and that also sparked uh, uh, the development in having youth circles uh, that started last year, 2023, with the first batch, um, looking at things like jobs, future of jobs, future of environment, um, climate change, and whatnot. Um, so that was, like, to the question about um, where the state, you know, should involve itself, I think the state itself is also changing its way of governance. And so um, we are seeing opportunities for youth to step up, and that's quite... Um, quite encouraging, really. Um, then we have a more collaborative approach where the civic, civil society can, can can contribute. We can have um, the state listening to us and also trying to um, put in play how these things could change. Um, and also, there's the if there is pressure from the ground up to, to uh, the private sector, there it, that also exists. So when we had the Singapore Climate Rally, um, that was to call out on... Uh, corporates at one point, like uh, to call out on um, policies that were not interest not not to the interest of uh, all citizens, for example. So it's on different levels and different pressure points, and I think that could eventually bring to a positive shift in society. Eventually, yeah. and
3: so um, in terms of um care and retirement plans, again, I realize. These kind of thoughts might come more towards by the time you're really at the low end, or not even the low end of youth, but when you're in your middle age. or So, bear that bearing that in mind, maybe young people might not think so much about retirement that early on. But just to say something, what I've noticed is that there are changes within society. First, new ideas being mooted, experimented with, and as they take hold, that's when the state intervenes and. St- makes, takes, you know, response to it. So actually the state doesn't immediately respond. There is a certain social change or such such, sort of ideational change to which the state then responds. So it's kind of, it's sort of sequential in some ways, right? So that's something to think about, but also when it comes to things like care, the fact that, you know, people are more increasingly open to co-living or retirement migration. This is some, this is the ideational change that happens on the ground first right so um, for example increasingly as people consider co co co-living actually what i've noticed especially when it comes to care the market comes in first and they sort of see what are the opportunities is there a possibility to you know build or build on this particular type of need in the market or in society and then sometimes if then the state can respond to it. Does there need to be more regulation? Make sure there's no potential for abuse, except in terms of care, neglect. That's sometimes when the state can intervene. So sometimes I think more any ground up initiatives can take place when it comes to care. And I think um, that's where it's it's like, said, creating pressure points, but here it could be building up of intensity, significant mass enough for the state to then create, have a response to it.
2: That's more my take on this when it comes to care.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I think with regards to employers and the future of work, uh, the government can be expected to be actually playing a, a key facilitating role, I think, uh, and, and taking the leadership actually to be proactive to uh, balance some of these um these, these uh, key social concerns that we have been touching on. right? So I'll give you an example is that um, in addition to climate change, I think essentially what we're talking about here is uh, environmental sustainability initiatives. And uh, another thing that uh, I think is, is coming up in terms of an issue is uh, diversity and representation at, at work and especially in the leadership of our companies and organizations and one of the ways in which uh, government can be a key facilitator in making these things materialize and happen is uh, to provide a, a framework to hold employers and companies accountable for these so we we see these things already starting to happen in terms of like sustainability reporting requirements you know that companies have uh, have, um, have have now to make Uh, as part of their annual reporting. And uh, I expect, you know, as these issues become more and more important to society, that we will start to look further beyond uh, the traditional bottom lines and financial metrics to incorporate more of these holistic uh, metrics when it comes to reporting and the evaluation of companies. So uh, definitely, the government has to uh, has to play a key role and central role in making that happen. Yeah.
0: Thank you our next uh, kind of most popular question is also kind of related to what we have been talking about and i know farah mentioned that you know we are not policy makers but i think the audience is just generally very interested in understanding how we can have perhaps integrated policies to better manage major crises like climate change uh, aging population as well as the multifaceted challenges at the workplace so i think the question boils down to how can we keep uh, our youth engage uh, in a practical way in kind of formulating and having a say in having integrated policies uh, and also avoiding uh, resigning to the bleak outlook uh, of life, um, such as you not know, giving up on issues, giving up on life or choosing the tangping, uh life. Yeah, so um, yeah, anyone that wishes to chime in first on this?
1: I'll go first because um, I deal with a lot of these kind of um like, how do youth act, how do we get youths to be interested in, in issues? Um, and how do you get them to not uh, change a perspective on how the world works? Because um, for a long time, we have been recipients and beneficiaries of good policies in Singapore. And so that um, translates to a particular kind of, um, I guess, okay, there's reverence for the state. There's like support for the state, um, but also um, there is this kind of like, Response, giving of the responsibility to the state to solve our problems for us. How can the government do better? How can the government help us? Um, but I do. But that also then means that they could actually end up not really putting in the kind of um, uh, thinking into what kind of issues there are out there. Like, are they actually in, investing themselves? in um, understanding issues, um, maybe alternative views as well, uh, thinking critically about these issues. So as someone who does, uh, who who runs youth workshops and youth programs for uh, futures thinking, in in futures thinking, um, I'm I'm realizing that that kind of toolkit, like that that as a tool could help them think issues deeply and say unpack issues. And then after that, start thinking about the future ahead. Uh, And in that process, they also end up um, realizing that they have agency, they have some form of um some form of um, way to they they themselves have to think about the future and even if they they are actors like the state that could help them out. Um, they also because the future is theirs, uh when they do future thinking, they actually end up um, being more invested in in thinking about the future and understanding those issues better.
3: So that's a deep question about especially thinking about the bleakness sometimes we face about the future. And I don't know, I don't think it's something particular to the youth. I think most of us sometimes have our moments of feeling very um depressed, bleak about something sometimes what's ahead of us. And I think that's where maybe personally for me, or just communication, intergenerational communication, I feel is some quite vital. And I know it's um there are initiatives to it, but it's we talk about, I think right now, intergenerational transfer of expertise, but also how did previous generations handle channel challenges? And I'm not saying, I agree there are some that are particular to the current generation, how the COVID-19 impacted them, but it also may have impacted other generations, other age groups differently, but also with each generation, there are particular challenges they have had to face. The pioneer generation may have had different challenges, but how did they work through it? What kind of concerns, what kind of choices did they make? I'm sure they won't translate in me directly the same way, but it is this conversation, seeing that people have gone through challenges and overcome them. It's what I think we can try to find some hope in that way. So I believe it is a lot to do with intergenerational communication and also across nations. And as a migration scholar, I think there are things to learn from other countries' scenarios. So not just across generation, but across borders as well. I think there's something there to learn as well. Seeing scenarios in other countries and how did youth engage with generations, similar people with similar challenges.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So um this
4: I, I think the core issue that we're touching upon here is um how do we ensure that we are giving uh, the youth a voice, right? A, a, a voice and um, how do we ensure that they know or they have a the sense that their voice is being heard? Um, I'm not an expert at this, but I can tell you that within organizations, um, the recommendation is that, you know, in order to, facilitate more participation through employee voice. Uh, the, the the employee itself has to have procedures and structures in place that encourage transparency. So whenever things are being done or whenever decisions are being made, you know, there's a need to, like I think Manusha also highlighted, the need for clear and consistent communication and, uh, to help people rationalize or see the point behind why certain things are being done and how they are being implemented, right? And I think that this can extend beyond, you know, just companies. And but if you look at society as a whole, uh, if people, uh, if, if 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 uh, people as a whole, uh, have the sense that their voice is being heard, and at the same time they have a sense that. There's a, a good level of transparency behind what kinds of policies and practices are being implemented in society, right? Then I think they'll feel more um motivated and emboldened to participate even more. Right. Uh, something that you know, is uh in line with uh, this trend of multi-channel communication is that. We have to be savvy with how we connect, especially with the younger generation. You know, I can't communicate with my sons in the same way that I communicate with my wife, okay? Uh, <laughs> we have to be more creative in the way that we package things, but you know, stay, uh, stay true to the core message, right? And, uh, and, and, and engage people in, 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 on multiple fronts, social media, um uh and and other technologically um enabled um facilities that help us to be better listeners um yeah and i think that um once we have these uh things in place uh it will be a good start to encouraging the amount of input and voice that we are trying to give to a more diverse sections of the society
0: Thank you. I think we can all agree that our youth today want a better future for themselves. And yeah, perhaps the way to go is to really engage them on a personal and community level and also to have them let them know that their voices are heard and that it does feed well into policy making. We also have kind of specific questions for our individual panelists. So I'll start first with also a very popular question on aging and retirement for Manusha. So the question is, um, isn't the more immediate concern for Singaporean youth, the one about how they are going to take care of the seniors in their families. So for example, anxieties about being part of the sandwich generation, especially in a time of like rising cost of living. Yeah,
3: that's a tough one, especially because I think that is something that the state is working on. So the state does realize the challenges of providing care, and especially when, among when there's more uh, economic difficulties. Now, I totally agree. It is a key issue. Um, Finding ways, I think it is about being creative beyond. Of course, the state does provide many initiatives. But again, I think I have to again go back to those other scenarios which I see in other countries. Now, I know this... Um, Again, links back to retirement migration. In certain scenarios, studies have shown where families, two generations, simply migrate out of the country. So here, Japanese families, where the the sandwich generation, so to speak, again, you know, they would migrate with their elderly parents to Malaysia. So while they are working in Malaysia, they would care for their parents because it's cheaper to provide care in Malaysia. So it comes down to, again, the cost, and I think it's difficult, I'm not a policymaker, maker, um, so in that sense, I do agree the the kind of solutions I can provide in this sense comments I can make are very, um, not very um, uh, shallow, I would say, in that sense, I would, I recognize that. So it is about seeing what works, again, comes down to bread and butter issues, right? It is about being sandwiched, be- uh, sorry for the pun, but you know, being stuck between the two, in that sense. So yes, migration, not a popular choice, I agree. But again, can we you know hire other people in more affordable ways? So these are not the best options, but I agree. These are key challenges that the future generations will have to face. But I think we kind of discount the fact that there is an ideational change. So this is where I think it's important to focus on the fact that to what extent do our parents or do you you young, you know, the current aging population expect their children to provide all 100% care? I think we tend to discount, and this is something that is very dominant among uh, research seen by uh, on elderly, that we do tend to assume that elderly want all their care needs fulfilled by the the younger generation. And I think my own work has shown that, that, elderly have a lot of agency. They do provide, do prefer not to depend on the younger generation. And I think some of the studies I showed in the presentation itself also reiterates that fact. So I think it's about striking that balance to what extent do you have to provide care? Are these our own cultural assumptions? I I recognize that there's filial piety, very strong sense of, um, So to what extent is this more emotional? Is this about the practicality? So I think it's also about, again, coming back to intergenerational communication. We can have assumptions and actually some of my own research has shown very clear disjunction between sons wanting to provide financial assistance to their parents. And the parents actually say, I don't need your money. I want you to call me. I want you to take the time, sit down with me and talk to me. And for them, that is what care is. So I think we need to think about what do we mean as providing care? Is it just the monetary aspects or is it more the emotional aspects? So I think it's about rethinking that as well.
2: Thank you, Thank
3: you
0: Manisha. Yeah, I think there's definitely a role for you know, the family unit, the state, as well as the local community to best provide uh, the best care that they can for the seniors in their family. So now we also have a question for Farah uh, on how can youth environmentalism strategies shift to ensure that they are sustainable and truly impactful? So for
2: example, how can we ensure that we are not just engaging in greenwashing practices?
1: Right. Um, I would not discount the fact that they are actually doing any... I mean, they're not greenwashing because they are. they are able to uh, find out more um, in virtual space, like online, right? Like there's a lot more information out there for them to critically analyze issues um, beyond what is uh, available, um, you know, out here. So for example, I think uh, there's been advocacy on like um, where our sand comes from. So when an issue about um, like um, the recent uh, developments on like the East Coast, um, Long Island plans came about some environmentalists immediately pull out like oh, these are the receipts we are not going to ha- uh, are we really going to get sand how are we even going to get sand to begin with and that brings people into a deep dive about our like how do we procure our sand um and that to me that is already like our environmentalists are no longer like greenwashing people into thinking um, we can make a better world by recycling you know, it's beyond that now, Um, our environmentalists, there are more senior environmentalists, I guess, people who are maybe slightly younger than me, uh, a a bit more experienced, but slightly younger than me, um, who look at issues more deeply. And all this started when we had um, environmental programs in universities, maybe about six to eight years ago. And these people have graduated, have already started working on environmental jobs, uh, have their own... um, platforms where they talk about all these issues deeply and so when the younger generation um maybe the gen z's at that level they're not looking at um like the environmental issues as something that is like simple some simple things they they start to question things like oh what are the um what the oil companies are doing? Why do why do we have so many oil refineries in Singapore? I had that conversation with a fourteen year old recently who started talking about like the larger system, um, and they are well aware of how um, um like how the world works and how it's problematic to them, um, but they also feel a bit um discouraged or defeated because they really don't think that they can find that um, opportunity to like solve it because it's such a big issue, um, and that's quite like um. That I think is, is a low point, but it actually has an opportunity for us to like um, solve over the long run because their voices matter as well. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Farah. So we also have a question on work uh, for Trevor, and this question uh, is uh, going to be a. a an, Uh, A good question for parents, but also for youth today. Uh, So in your opinion, is the current education system and structure preparing the current generation or the current younger youth well
2: for future workplace?
4: Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, right? uh, I I think if from the people that I've been talking to, uh, especially the locals, we have a very high standard that we are holding our own education system up against. Right. And it is not until that I speak or I share what this system is with my colleagues around the world that I start to develop a deeper appreciation for uh what we're doing here in Singapore. So in short, yes, I think that we uh certainly are doing things that are in the right direction when it comes to preparing our next generation to succeed in the workplace of the future. But of course, there are are certain things that we can continue to improve on. And uh, yeah, so I mean, it's not perfect, but I think we are taking the right steps. I think one of the things that we have made quite a significant advance in is to expose our children and school going uh, students to more opportunities and more ways of learning a particular skill, right? So unlike when uh, I passed my youth at least a few decades ago, unlike when I was going through the system, Uh, there are now multiple pathways in which one can go about pursuing one's passion, one's interest uh, with regards to a vocation or profession, unlike before. So I think that the provision of these multiple pathways and I think also the shifting of the philosophy away from formalized degrees, right? uh to the acquisition of skills and looking at it not just from uh targeted times in which we take exams when we are 12 16 or 18 and then when are we going to graduate shifting the conversation from these milestones to really a continuous learning kind of like a mindset that you will still continue to learn, uh, upgrade, pick up new skills, even after you have graduated, I think that we are making positive steps towards achieving that kind of an ecosystem when it comes to learning. So I'm encouraged, uh, and I also recognize that uh, we still have to do more.
0: I think this echoes very well to the first panel on how we think perhaps about what makes a successful Singaporean or what makes a successful youth and perhaps a, you know, a continuous conversation with our youth as well as a mindset change, uh, regardless of how slow it will be, would perhaps be key to, you know, helping our youth of today. We also have more questions for Trevor about work. Uh, so one is about how, uh, you know, as you've shared uh, in your sharing uh, on the different principles um, that are, you know, use one from your workplace and uh, how workplace can provide a, uh, a. Kind of conducive environment for them. So, as an individual employee, how can I contribute in shifting the culture in my organization to adapt the principles that you mentioned?
4: Yeah. So, I would not encourage you. Know, you know, just like a um, a singular mindset that uh, that that we have to have our voice heard you know, immediately, regardless of the situation or whatever, but uh, what I always advise my students, and you know, people will come to me for advice when you know I'm thinking of making this career change or getting into this profession. I think we we have to be good scanners of the environment, right? We we have to get, uh, get get critical in the way that we kind of like uh, observe the way things are. How much do you think the current environment is uh conducive to receiving? such input in terms of voice and feedback and adapt accordingly, right? So like uh, like a very um, varied landscape whereby the workers, there's a good variety of workers and diversity in terms of workers out there, in terms of their wants and their preferences. Uh, similarly, in terms of employers out there, we have a whole swath of employers that um, Kind of like are characterized by differing organisational cultures, right? So we have to become adept at uh, kind of like evaluating what is important at these cultures, and if uh, and and I think that that's important because they kind of like give us a signal about how we can go best about making our voice heard, right? Some would prefer you know a more challenging or out open approach whereby they actually encourage the open challenging of ideas, sharing of ideas, the critical analysis of 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 an idea of a coworker, things like that. Some cultures do endorse that. But others, they kind of like don't really like that. And and that's kind of like one of the fastest ways in which you can get yourself ostracized if, if you're if you try to do that in the wrong culture, right? So other cultures would prefer a more one-on-one approach whereby you bring up these concerns with uh, your assigned supervisor and so that, they are, that the, key, the the key um, tagline that they like to use it there are proper lines of communication <laughs> right So uh, yeah, so I think that being being aware and being uh, able to be um, sensitive enough to pick up these signals, uh, would help, I think, uh, you to ensure that your voice is being heard more and to be a more participative member of the organization as well.
0: Yep. And I think this, yeah, it also echoes back to what you mentioned about, you know, being transparent, and then also having our youth be highly adaptable to, you know, the workplace that they would like uh, to devote really a significant part of their lives to. So we also have uh, like a generic question for uh, all our panelists uh, this afternoon. So I think this kind of is related to the the questions we had before, but it relates specifically perhaps to the expectations of both uh, our youth as well as other members of our society. So the question is um, about how can we make the discussion on on aging uh, as well as um, climate change and the workplace more productive in involving the voices of not only our youth but also that of the older generation, as well as perhaps that of managers, of employers, uh, as well as perhaps for companies that are invested in the climate, um, uh, advocacy so you know are we adding to the anxiety of youths with such emphasis on these issues and are we putting too much burden
2: on them right to help uh, us uh, resolve or address such issues
1: oh man this is a, this is tough right because you have um you do, you do the the future may seem bleak because you have very um very heavy developments happening around the world beyond climate change. You have new political issues as well. That's very heavy, very scary. Uh, Youth themselves try to not shut out from the world. Uh, some have. Some have decided, you know, this is all in vain and therefore we should just party or something like get out of it. Um, but I do feel like we could be more creative in ways that we could communicate all these beyond um, this is what we need to do, this is the policy that's going to happen. Um, I think the arts has, has, has a role to play in com- making it more palatable for people to understand uh, critical issues, with contemporary issues. And then after that, getting people to participate in such a process, such a, I mean, beyond just thinking about it, but to also maybe try it out, like you know, an experiment along. Um, so there are, I mean, I've seen some, um, like exhibitions and um yeah places where you go to i mean you are enjoying yourself but you're also uh thinking critically provoked to think quite critically about certain issues like particularly in climate change um yeah for me i think that i will conclude it by saying that um, i think the arts also plays a role in this
3: the tough question and especially when you think about you know adding to the burden so that i'll I'll just try to sort of enter at that point of the question that you asked clara i think it's um it is demoral demoralizing if you look at it as a burden but i wonder whether we can look at some of these issues in terms of opportunities care workplace culture these are opportunities actually and i think what we need to do is sort of re think whether the existing structures is what's creating the issue. What are the ways we can reinterpret this particular structure? So in terms of aging, the main issue we're actually having is the increasing care burden. As we previously talked about, the sandwich generation, it is about how do we address these care needs, right? So one thing we can do is what are ways we can incentivize caregiving? So is there, just like we have this ongoing conversation about Paternity and maternity leave, what kind of leave can we provide to taking care of our parents? Because currently that's not recognized in most countries. Very few countries actually recognize that people need to care for their aging parents and what kind of leave support can be provided for them. So then it's not a burden, it's just another fact of life. It's just a way that workplace culture also can support it. So this is again coming to that idea of integrating systems. So That's one way I can think about it. But also, you know, um, again, it is an opportunity. Caregiving is a huge, it's one of the biggest growing sectors in Singapore is the care sector. So this is where you have more and more jobs coming. So it's just a matter of, again, a shift in approach where how can we make caregiving, well, with you know, ethically, a business it is, and a business opportunity. It's just that how do you do it ethically? What kind of safety measures can be put in place to ensure that there is no abuse for the elderly, of course, but also opportunities for the youth. So the way I see it, it's yes, it is. It's a care burden, but it's also an opportunity. Thank you.
2: Yeah.
4: Um, in line with what has been shared with so far i think that uh, a key step would require making people more accountable for what they say uh, just as we are held accountable for our actions i think in this day and age where uh, there's much more democratization in uh, you know communication channels and things like that you know if you have a voice you know what are you using that voice for so i think there has to be an increased amount of accountability towards how uh, the youth are going to use their voice. If not, I think I'm afraid that it will be shifting from a positive voice to more of a venting kind of generation, right, which I don't think that's productive uh, for the good of Singapore. Um, the second point I want to make is that we want to definitely facilitate more engagement across uh, underrepresented groups. So one particular group Uh, A couple of uh, groups that have traditionally been um, less represented are those with with persons with disabilities and also the aging workforce when it comes to uh, participation at work. So I think that the more um, interaction and engagement that we can facilitate, across workers representing these groups uh, would be helpful. And my final point is I think the key challenge here is to find a sweet spot, right, uh, between empowering the next generation, right, giving them the autonomy and clarity in terms of what they're able to do, but at the same time, balancing that with, uh, I think, strong and decisive leadership. Because I, I I do think that we live in a society that still has, uh. High expectations on its leaders. And the leaders have to follow through. But at the same time, we also want to have <laughs> participation and a stake in, in doing things. Therefore, there's this kind of a sweet spot that has to be struck. Yeah. Thanks.
0: Yeah, I think that is a good reminder that, you know, although this conference is on use, but of course, we can't forget that other groups uh, and their voices will be important as we chart the terrain ahead. So uh, yeah, before we end, uh, I would just like to ask like one last question. Um, so we all know that the terrain ahead is not one without challenges. So are there any last words, or uh, words of encouragement, or words of hope that you would like to leave uh, with our youth today um, as they face the future? So anyone
2: that uh, would like to go ahead can um, chime in.
1: I can't help but um <laughs> I can't help but end this on a positive note because it it is very discouraging when you think about a very uh tumultuous terrain ahead um but we do we do want to work we do need to work together to get to overcome all these challenges and so i I encourage our youth to be a bit more optimistic and positive and I and to use that energy to create positive change in society because I I don't. There is no, um, yeah. I don't think that we are at a stage where we are totally helpless. Um, there has been developments and changes in how we govern ourselves since uh, as Singaporeans and as as a nation, and so I would think that that it's very encouraging, and we could push the envelope further. Uh, so don't lose hope in that. Yeah. Well, and for
3: me, I guess the main if it's one keyword i could put in is to communicate and i think um especially when we're feeling bleak feeling sort of demoralized the tendency is for us to sort of close up we tend to um, start in and think that we, we you know it's our generation or we as an individual who may be facing these challenges especially and i notice this when it comes to caregiving particularly that you feel that you're you're kind of isolated. And I think it is about creating those connections across peers, across generations as well, and to learn from them. And I think it is really about finding that kind of support network. You sometimes just, maybe we won't find a solution sometimes even in sharing, but you know that you're not alone in feeling that. And I think that in itself is a good starting point, just knowing that you're not the only one experiencing it. And I think panels like this, those questions in itself do show that we're not alone in facing that. It's just a way of trying to work together. Like Trevor said, yes, not to make it too threatening, but just understanding, to be caring and understanding in that communication as well.
4: Um, One word I think is empathy. You know, when we have empathy, we are more able to achieve a common ground. And when we have common ground, we have collaboration and great things are possible when people collaborate. Thanks.
0: Thank you all. So we have now come to the end of this panel. I would like to once again, thank our distinguished speakers, Ms. Farah, Dr. De Silva, as well as Associate Professor Yu for this very informative and enriching session. I would also like to thank all participants for joining us this afternoon and for actively participating in the Q&A. Our next session, panel three on the centrality of well-being will start at 2.30pm and we hope to see you there. Thank you.